this is Don Bluth, and you're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers. You're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, Episode 21, Interview with Don Bluth. Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. I'm your host, Morgan Stradling. I'm here with Chelsea Robson. Hello. And Mason Smith. Hello, world. <laughs> so we're here. We have a really exciting, awesome episode for you guys today. Chelsea, shall you introduce this for us? Yeah, we we were so thrilled and pleasured to be able to head on over and have a conversation with Don Bluth in his home uh, as he was preparing for one of his plays over at the Don Bluth Front Row Theater. We were able to take an hour of his time and just really an amazing person. I'm I'm really glad that we've had this opportunity and that we can share this conversation with you guys today. He talks a lot about acting and what an animator needs to know, as well as even goes into a few personal beliefs as well. You know, this interview is really exciting. We actually got to do this interview in his living room and Mason was Skyped in. So it was interesting. We got to talk about his theater, like Chelsea mentioned, his love for acting and how that plays with animation. And it's just a really, um, it's not your typical Don Bluth interview where it says, oh, tell me about your career and what was it like leaving Disney and what was it like starting your own studio? I mean, it's just it's just really a conversation between us. And it's it delves into a lot of things that I haven't really heard him talk about before, but he's very passionate and knowledgeable. So it's highly recommended to anyone. So I know you're going to love it. Yeah, definitely. This is a chance to hear personally from one of the animation masters, in my opinion. And like Morgan said, it's not just your run-of-the-mill interview where it's like, Okay, how is this? How is that? We really get into the nitty-gritty of Don Bluth's like philosophy and his personal feelings on animation and what that means to him. And so if that interests you, then listen up cuz this is going to be one heck of an interview. We hope you really enjoy it. And after you're done, make sure to head on over to the website. Uh we are located at www.therotoscopers.com. You can find us on Twitter, The Rotoscopers, and Tumblr, and Facebook, and all those things. You can find me, Morgan Stradling, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Morgan Stradling. You can find Chelsea at Twitter. Her screen name also is just her name, Chelsea Robson. And Mason, you can find him at thisanimatedlife.blogspot.com. Enjoy the interview. starting an MBA program at ASU. Mm-hmm. like to work in animation maybe one day. just kind of depends. Uh, more management side, but um, I just like animation. I'm a fan. My name is Chelsea Robson, and I am a singer. And so basically my entire growing up, I've just, I've watched all of these movies forever, and they've always had such a, a strong power in my life of like storytelling and performing and so I, I guess that's kind of how I how I fit into the mix here. Mason, Mason, you want to explain who you are? Yeah, first I want to say that I'm super excited and uh, you know I feel very humbled to be interviewing with you, Mr. Bluth first. Yeah, so by way of introduction, I Mason Smith, I am <laughs> studying pre-animation at Brigham Young University, uh, working on my portfolio, trying to get a sketchbook together. Um, I'm also doing computer science with an animation emphasis, doing some programming, learning how to do that. As far as my background, I have been drawing and kind of using my imagination since I was old enough to draw, really. I've done cartooning since I was three years old, and my, I really got an interest in film when I watched Star Wars as a kid. That's kind of when it started for me. And then, of course, my parents always turned on Disney films, and I, I grew to love them, and um, when Toy Story ran rolled around and I saw my first Pixar movie, I was really interested in computer animation and how that worked and how a computer could simulate a world and make these characters. And so I guess you could say I try to do a little bit of everything from hand-drawn animation to um, I've done flash animation. I also do 3D. And so at BYU, I'm trying to get into the program for one. And uh, I'm also finding where my strengths are. 
my favorite Don Bluth films are um, Secret of Nim and Anastasia. Anastasia was a big film for me growing up, and also Titan A.E. Are you in Provo, Utah? I'm here in Provo, yeah. That's where you are, because you're a student right now. Yes, sir. Okay. Sir. He's from Texas. Texas. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) So that's the Texan in me. Um, (laughs) That's okay. You know, I'll I'll tolerate that. (laughs) You know, I'm 24, and if I'm talking to someone who's 25, I still call him sir. Do you really? (laughs) Good for you. So um, you're 24 right now, and you've been interested in animation for how long? Right. So I've really been into animation all my life. I can can confidently say that. Uh, Like I said, it started with Star Wars. And when I saw Toy Story, and I just I just knew from an early age that I needed to do something creative, and that was really my strong that's really my strong point I think in life. Uh, are you uh, are you good in drawing? Are you good with a pencil? Yeah, I guess you could. Yeah, you could say I am. <laughs> um, I, I have a lot of experience drawing, and I'm good at that. Um, I do a lot of pencil, and I do a lot of ink. So, uh, I mean, everyone I show my stuff to says it's good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, animation, um, I've come to discover over the years that animation is really a two-pronged performing art. One of it is the graphic part of it where you can either draw or you can learn the computer well enough that you can handle a, a model in the computer. That's one facet. The other facet is your sense of entertainment or acting. Um, because acting is another discipline and drawing and acting are really really far apart mm-hmm. one is a very lonely thing you sit at a table with a pencil and all by yourself you do things coming out of your brain uh the other one you're doing it in concert with other people and, and that's vastly different and also you're constantly with acting having to go inside yourself figure out who you are as a person and then try and imagine turning yourself into another creature so you can act on stage as someone else animators don't do that so an actor is always in the moment trying to be an actor. An animator sits at a desk and fights with graphics. Mm-hmm. Consequently, I think what happens is um, many of the traditionally drawn animated films are lacking in entertainment, whereas maybe there's maybe the something I've seen it happen also with the, um, the CG uh, pictures where really the understanding that's missing for me is one in which they understand that you must become a character to tell a story. And even if you're an animator on a picture, you have to figure out who that character is and know how they think. Mm -hmm. So that's really, really important. And a lot of animators I've met and known over the years never really get beyond the graphics part of it. They learn to mug, you know, and in in acting we have an expression for that. It's called indicating. So we, we have six expressions in animation that we know how to do. We can be angry, we can be sad, we can be happy. We can be shy, you know, and we have six expressions, and we just change those about. But that has nothing to do with what a character is feeling or thinking, which generally causes the body and the face to move. So approaching it from the interior, I think, is the one little ingredient that we could improve upon. Approaching entertainment from inside instead of the affectation of it. Right now, we're trying to cast a play here. Uh, of the Wizard of Oz, and I've gone through an audition, something like about eight women who've come in to read for the witch. And every one of them come in here and do a very two-dimensional representation of a witch. One one woman came in a day before yesterday and said, what are the good qualities of the witch? Is there anything about her that people could like? And it causes you to think. You say, well, who is this woman? And why does she want those stupid ruby slippers? <laughs> What's that all about? And who does she hate? And and if she gets the slippers, and you can fill in lots of cliches here, you can say, um, well, it'll make her more powerful. So what? What would she do with the power? Mm -hmm. Why does she want it? So we don't know anything about the witch that was in the movie The Wizard of Oz. We know that she cackles. We know that she hates Dorothy, and we know she wants the slippers, but we don't know too much about her motives. And that makes for a very shallow character. If it weren't for all those wonderful songs and all the beautiful color and everything, I'm not sure if you'd watch it over and over and over. But what Wicked did when they wrote it is they gave you, they went inside the woman who was the witch. They went inside her and found out who she really was. By the end of Wicked, you love her. That's very true. You love her. And she's the one that is the good person. And Glenda is some of the strange little shallow thing (laughs) that that, um, isn't at all what you would like. 
Mm-hmm. So I think in our medium of animation, whether it's CG or traditional, um, the thing that has to be addressed is story, number one. You can call that script if you want, but story. And story, is to me, is generated by a character. And character is a psychological thing. You have to examine the inside of a character. Anyway, that's kind of where my brain is nowadays on the whole animation front. So there you go. Yeah, thanks for that. Okay, who's next? <laughs> well, you know, we've had the awesome opportunity to be able to come and visit you uh, in your here in your home and uh, see these these wonderful plays that you're putting on here. And we were just wanting to know a little bit more about, like, you know, how did you get into that? What, you know, mm-hmm. gave you that desire to just start, just, hey, let's start something up in my room. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it started kind of innocently. It wasn't a design to go into theater or anything, although... Years ago, uh, before, let's see, when was it? After I came off my mission, I went to Argentina on a mission. When I came off the mission, I had a brother who was very interested in theater, and he said, why don't we start a theater, which we did. And it was in Culver City, California. And it was an old Safeway store, and we did a theater for two years there and did mainly musicals. But I was always very much afraid of it because uh, I knew I couldn't block mm-hmm. actors on stage. I knew I couldn't sing. I could play the piano, so I was in the orchestra pit a lot. But I started watching that every night we did a show, the actors were slightly different. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the same jokes that they said every night, sometimes the audience laughed, sometimes they didn't. So there was something that that was organically different about each performance. And that piqued my interest. So over the years, then I, I went into animation and worked about 10 years at Disney Studio and then went out on my own. Make Secret of Nim and Land Before Time and a few others. And then it became an issue that I had to figure out. You know, what is story? And what are the characters thinking, like we've already talked about? And what's going on inside their head? When we were doing The Secret of Nim, there was this little mother mouse who had a child who was inside of a little brick down and kind of a, uh, submerged in the ground. Yeah. And he couldn't get out. And the tractor was coming into the field. And her dilemma was, how do I save him? And if you'll notice, most of the movies, she goes around crying and wringing her hands and helping and asking someone to help her. But she never drew on her own strength. And for a long time, we were writing this movie and making the movie. We kept saying, how are we going to end this? How, how is she going to read it? <laughs> the book tells you how, but it's, it's sort of flat and it doesn't give you a buzz or an exhilarating feeling. So we said somewhere in here, she has to get the courage or the strength to realize that she is the problem and the solution. Which gets into philosophy, doesn't it? Yeah. Gets into that. So we kept going there and thinking it and thinking it. And the more I was doing this, that reminded me of the days when my brother and I had a theater. And it it really is about that. What is the person thinking inside? That's what I want to know. And the more someone will show you what they feel inside and talk to you about their feelings, the more that becomes exciting. Mm -hmm. The more that you feel truth or you feel honesty and there's a certain exhilaration about that. There's a connection as well. Yeah. You connect finally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, in movie making, I think it's the same thing. Movies that seem to work are movies that tell you something that's honest Mm -hmm. and movies that pull out gimmicks, you know, like explosions or whatever they do it, or they, (laughs) they pander on the latest kind of song or music that the teenagers want to hear. They're usually very, what do I say, seasonal or dated, and they're going in mm-hmm. fashion very soon. But the more you can tell me about the human psyche, tell me about who I am by something you're saying, the more I really will appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I think the best stories will do that. Mm-hmm. The thing that I loved about the movie Up, why do I like that movie? Because, you know, I generally don't cotton to a CG movie, but I like that movie because of the relationship between the boy and the girl. And they grew up together and mm-hmm. she died and they went on an adventure. And finally, he couldn't, he couldn't let go of the adventure until he finally, in one of the plot points, he reads that thing in the scrapbook that says, we had a wonderful adventure. Now go and have another one. Mm-hmm. And she released it. And to me, I mean, the strength of the movie is right there. You just yeah. really get excited about it. Yeah. Oh. So uh, storytelling is what most entertainers should be about if they're not. They should be you know, about telling stories. You do it with your music when you sing, Mm because I heard you. (laughs) You do that, you tell stories. And if you can tell the story in such a way that you touch another human heart, you've really done a great service. I have a question, Mr. Bluth, about characters. Yeah. Before Front Row Theater, before you started this theater troupe, you worked on 
some very unique characters in your films. And so my question is whether you're writing a play or whether you're directing one of these films with animated characters, how important to you are those characters? Like, what do you want to achieve with them? Well, if if we were to go back on a kind of a bigger level, you know, just get back a ways, and you would say, does the world need some more movies? And the answer that I invariably come up with is no. You have vaults of them, and you can sit for hours and watch them again. And every movie that, you, that comes out, you might go to it and you say, well, yeah, I've seen that story before. Mm-hmm. And so what's the value of a movie? What's the value of a play? And I, my mind goes immediately there to find out, you know, why do we do this? Why, why do we have something in our, in our diet of living which is called entertainment? What does that accomplish? And I think if it's just simply to pass the time, then it really is is a deterrent rather than a help to you as it, in your growing. But if it's something that is a journey, that you go on the journey, and while you're there, you pick up a few pieces of information that tell you about yourself, then when you come back to your real life, that's where you're living, you know, not in a fantasy, back to your real life, you're able to live that life better because you learn something. Mm-hmm. There's a, if you haven't, if you're not acquainted with this, and I'm sure you are, but there is a wonderful man named Joseph Campbell. You know who I'm talking about? This hero. Yeah, the hero with a thousand faces. Mason, do you know that? Um, no, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, you need it. <laughs> okay, I'll write that down. <laughs> okay, Joseph Campbell was a philosopher, and he studied human nature, a great humanist. But he traveled the world over, and he collected mythology. And in the mythology, he found out that almost every culture, no matter how different they were, whether they were green, purple, or pink, it doesn't matter. But however they were, they all had pretty much the same stories they were telling to each other. And uh, they're in the fairy tales or the fables, or the myths, or legends, whatever they might be. But those fairy tales all served as a purpose to help people grow. And he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And we're all the same hero. And we all leave the community, and we go on a journey. And while we're out there on that journey, we meet a great villain who would try to defeat us or destroy us in some way. And we have to defeat that villain, whether it's weather You know, whether it's a relative, whether it's a parent, whether it's a sibling, you have to meet that that uh, nemesis and defeat it. Doesn't mean destroy it, but you have to defeat it so you no longer are subject to whatever was happening there. And when you do, you will have learned something. When you return to the village, you're a great boon to the village. You can help them solve their problems because you've learned something. So I always think that movies should be the hero's journey. You, you take a main character, and he goes on a journey. And while he's out on that journey, he, uh, he, meets, he meets this villain. And then there's an expression that say he, he, while he's on that journey and he meets the villain, he is in the belly of the beast. And in the belly of the beast, this is what, like, in the, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Who was that in the Bible? Yeah, that was Jonah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, while he was in the belly, that's where I he that <laughs> Yay. <laughs> that's where he learned not to object to what he was told. That's where he learned, you know, to grow up. But it wasn't until he was in the whale. So poor Jonah had to learn it the hard way, but most of us do anyway. So I think the Hero of the Thousand Faces really tells me a lot because I think that movies and books, novels, everything is really about telling us what you know about the human condition that we can all benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So when you make a movie, and that's the first thing I think. Is this story worth anything? Or is it just another movie to use up our time? So since okay. characters are so important to you, what, you know, and in your stories and, and in the play that you do, what characters have been your favorite or most important, most dynamic over the years that you've created? Oh, wow. Because wow. <laughs> there's some that are a bit more deep than others. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? It, it, it's hard to pick that. I, I know in Anastasia it was an interesting thing because there was a young girl who had amnesia, didn't know who she was at all, and had to go on this journey to find out who she was. Mm-hmm. The truth was she was royal. Mm-hmm. She was a princess. She came from this great background of, of royal. And um, she had to figure that out. And even when, when she got there, she didn't have to believe it. So that's kind of a journey anywhere. What if, what if each of us really is royal? What if we are, and the, the other yesterday is much yes, what if you are God's in embryo? Mm-hmm. That's, that's better than royal. What if you are that, but you just can't get your, your mind around it? You can't mm-hmm. believe that. Because you, you've got so many flaws that you don't know what to do with them. Yeah. So if you could say to yourself, somewhere inside of me, there's this great entity 
that is divine, that's going to make me appreciate who I am. That's going to make me work hard. That's going to make me treat other people better. And the whole gospel to me is really a, a book of how to treat people. Yeah. What it is. And then the promises like doctrine and covenant. So that is the, the teachings and the promises. You decide what it is going to take you to make you be a peaceful individual. And more than just peaceful, because that's sort of just neutral. Yeah. <laughs> but you go out there and you, you give, you help. You help other people to find a happy moment in their life. And if you did, that's one of the reasons I do theater, because if we can make someone smile, if we can make someone even look at the theater and get a little glimpse of something and say, you know what, that's true. I really like that. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> any of that can happen. And the theater is, a, is the, God uses the theater all the time because he presents scenes. We call them visions. But he'll have some actors go and play out a scene in front of somebody. And then they're looking at this scene, which is probably very well acted and very real and everything. They get impressed by that, which causes them to learn. It's better than someone just telling you words. So acting, if it's done with the heart and it's done skillfully, is one of the greatest teachers. And we're all here to learn. So that's why I really believe it. Movies, I really believe in movies. <laughs> if they make you a better person for watching. <laughs> if they don't, you know, all the animation that you're learning how to do, Mason, all that is for naught. Yeah. I mean, that's a discouraging thing to say. <laughs> Well, all the animators that I know learn to squash and stretch and overlap and, and all that kind of thing, all the rules of animation, that is with your paper about two inches from your eyes. If you can get back further than that, then you can say all of that is definitely the detail of it, but there's a bigger picture. And the bigger yeah. picture is, is your animation touching somebody. Yeah. Wow. I think like in all aspects of life, I mean, I'm not an animator. And never, I never will be. <laughs> like, that's just not in my in my goals process. But I think in anything that you you do in life in general, if you are creating something and if you are trying to do something uh, for the benefit of others, or you know, not not particularly just to gratify your own self, but just to help somebody else, to help convey an emotion and and reach somebody else, then you are. Other, like, we know every, we all know somebody who isn't like that. Yeah, we do. We yeah. all know someone that is not like that, who is very much inward, like is very much reflected on themselves all the time, and that's all they they can't ever get past their front no, that page no. in front of them. And it really does make a difference when you can reach out further than that. There's a there's a great line in Pinocchio. I don't know why this always affected me, but you're talking about you know selfishness is everything is mm -hmm. just inward. Well, when, when poor Geppetto and the Pinocchio are trying to get out of the belly of the whale, they, they, they're paddling like mad just to, you know, because everything comes in. And, and uh, what I think it's the little cricket that says, Jimmy the Cricket says, everything goes in, nothing goes out. Everything goes in, nothing goes out. <laughs> Which is a kind of a little morality statement because there are a lot of people who are constantly focused on just themselves and what they want. And so they sell them will stop just a minute and say, wait a minute, there's two or three people around me right now. I wonder what they want. The, the great irony of all this, of course, is that if you help someone else be happy, inadvertently that makes you happy. So, but you don't learn that until later in life. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got to help other people. And I think that's the key to being happy. So how did you incorporate that in your studio? Because now with the theater, you're able to mentor and teach. Yeah. Um, how are you able to help those animators see past the paper and to, you know, see past the character and what, you know, was written on the script? Well, let's see. At one point, when we were in Ireland with a studio, we had 460 employees. So you, you naturally have to have uh, a personnel department, someone mm -hmm. taking care of them, and, you know, because lots of things happen and they always have problems. But I think we would get together a lot, particularly with the anyone in the animation department. We would get together with them and we would talk about the, the characters in the movie. We'd talk about what they're trying to create. And with every scene in the movie, you'd always sit down with that animator and you would say, okay, this is what the scene should try and put across emotionally. So you're not just talking about it squashing and stretching and doing all the rules so it looks like it's a fluid animated scene. You're trying to get them to portray a feeling. And the word that we don't use as much as we should is the word feeling. Because if you don't feel what you're trying to animate, no one's going to feel anything watching. You can't give away what you don't have. Mm -hmm. So you first have to do that. Now, when you sing, when I heard you sing the other night when you were here with your family, 
it wasn't your voice that got me particularly, but it was the feeling that you conveyed in the song you were singing. Mm-hmm. Because the feeling is really strong, and I really, really got it. So I said immediately to myself, that is more than entertainment. Thank That's you. more than just taking you know somebody's time while you sing a song and hit the right notes and you know and the rhythm and everything mm-hmm. or the words, but it, but it has to do with whether you can give me a feeling which reassures me that that I'm okay, and that's what real entertainment does. Now, why did it all happen years ago <laughs> in in the movie world? I mean, there's all these wonderful films, and I watch the um, what's it, the Turner Classic Movies. I watch oh, that yeah. all the time because <laughs> that's where the best movies, are. They're the best stories are being told. And I don't know how we forgot how to tell stories nowadays, but you have to work really hard to find a good current movie. Yeah, because most of them aren't. You know, and you get into reality TV, and you're just totally lost because <laughs> that's about 160,000 light years from reality. Yeah, for me. All well, this is just sort of gross, but people on an island and see if they can survive. <laughs> so it doesn't tell me much about human nature, and at all. And when you put people together like that, I think what happens is they get more selfish because yeah. they're trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an incentive, yeah, monetary, right? And but if you've never tasted, I'm using the word tasted. If you never tasted the feeling that comes from helping someone out of the abyss helping someone feel better. If you've never felt that feeling of being the one who helped, you don't know what I'm talking about. Because mm-hmm. you have to have experienced it to know what it is. And maybe that's why we have a few years on this earth, because it takes a while to really feel that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So it's really strange. As an animator, I've tried to analyze exactly what, what my career has been. I know there's some strange things about my work habits. I, I get a real thrill out of building a film but after it's built, I never go back and look at it. So, really? no, it's, it's been absolutely years and years and years since I've seen Secret of Nim. I have no idea. I would, <laughs> I would probably surprise myself to go back and watch and see what it is. But and it's fun to sit in an audience and watch their reaction to the film because that's part of the making of the film. But to go back and just sit in the film and go, oh, wow, isn't that nice? Oh, that was, I just, I don't do that. <laughs> Well, that makes a lot of sense, though, because you've spent years working on the exact same story, the exact same thing. You know, mm. you know far more about every little picture that is shown up on that screen than anybody else does. And so, mm. like, the movie itself isn't the highlight for you. No. By the way, I, I can't watch the films as a movie yeah. because I see <laughs> each of the scenes as a relationship with the animators. Yeah. I remember that scene. I remember what we had to talk about to get that scene. I remember this scene. And even in the coloring, the coloring, uh, this is something I think most animators may not have known, but it was a term that was um, created at the Disney studio years ago, and it's called orchestration of color. When you think of orchestration, you generally think of music or sound, Mm -hmm. correct? Well, colors have the same thing. Colors are orchestrated to cause you to have the feeling. So. If you took a beautifully animated scene and a beautifully written scene and the actors and who had done the voices had done it immaculately, if you color that wrong, you'll kill it. Yeah. So the whole thing will, will lose its power, its emotional power. Mm-hmm. So um, everything I can think of from the backgrounds to the script to the acting to the score that goes in afterwards to the sound effects to the whole experience of it, is all such a composite that you have to sort of keep your hands on every one of those little ingredients to make it really work as a movie. But it, but I think I like a play better because we don't have to paint it. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. The people are there. We costume them. Uh, you're working with live people who can generate feelings and emotions. And some actors are good at this and some are not. Some are like animators. They, they can't animate. <laughs> <laughs> So you kind of mentioned that you you were you like to be involved in all the aspects you know, from the beginning. You know, you've been known to animate scenes, to write scripts, to even write songs. Um, so how has that been translated to your plays? Like being kind of why is it important to be involved in all those stages? But I think when you're making a <laughs> when you're making a cake, the eggs, the flour, the sugar, the, all the things that go into the cake, each one is important. Mm-hmm. And if you make everything organic except the eggs, maybe you've corrupted the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're putting together a movie, there's lots of pieces that go into it. And, and I don't know where you can choose one above the other. 
if I had to, I would say it's probably the character mm-hmm. and what the character's been through. Um, but the way the character moves, the way the character talks, which is the voice talent, the way, and voice talent is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. You know that. It's really, really difficult because you can just change the slightest little thing in your voice and it means something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can just, what are you talking about? You, know, you, can, just, you can do that. And it, and it all changes the color of the feeling, the emotion. So if you get people around you and you and you hire a lot of bodies and say, no, we have a budget and we have a lot of bodies, so those bodies should be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. What if they don't know? What if they've never felt the feelings? Mm-hmm. So that's the part that always worries me. Because if they can't do it, then you want to be there to kind of help them get there. Yeah. Uh, I certainly don't enjoy hogging jobs. That's certainly not it. But <laughs> what I generally do, if you have foreign employees, is you go around each one, you spend time with them saying, okay, let's talk about what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Because the joy comes if they succeed. If I have to take their scene and do it, there's no joy in that. Mm-hmm. There's resentment on their side. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Plus, that, you know, they get discouraged and they feel like they're worthless and everything. Mm-hmm. So you want, and even as a director, I would be sure that I would cast somebody an animation scene that I knew they could succeed at. And don't give them something that's way above mm-hmm. their head. Mm-hmm. So once they succeed at that, then you give them something a little harder. So you have to keep the human element in. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you don't, um, they get discouraged. And when they get discouraged, then they just stop giving. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's part of the human. If I feel like my what I'm giving, my gift, basically, is being rejected, I don't want to give it anymore. No, you'll, you'll go sign them. <laughs> right. Just stay over here, then. There's a there's a history. None of us will ever really know it, I suppose. But there's a history at the Disney Studio, which is a darker side, um, because we see the happy little side with right. the, with the face on. But the darker side. I remember years ago when I was 18 and I was working at Disney Studio. There was an older man who had been there for years and years, and he called me into his office one time, and he says, he says, "Do you see these lists I have here?" And they were lists of names. He says, "I've known all these people over the years." He says, "Most of them aren't here anymore." And um, then he said, um, these are people who have worked here and then have either died or moved on somewhere else. Then he had says, do you see this list right here? And he had another list, and all the names were written in red. And I said, yeah, there was about 50 names on there that he had known. I said, yeah, yeah. And he says, these are people that worked here that killed themselves. Thanks. Oh, wow. And I said, why? He says, a lot of them drank. He says, a lot of them were filled with fear. A lot of them hated the job, hated what they did, didn't get along with the people around them. There were jealousies, and I went, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I was only 18. Right. So, so anyway, but, but I thought on that over the years, and I said, oh, so all the pretty, pretty artwork that you see and all the beautiful dance you see on the ballet stage and all the stuff that you see behind it is a sweat and an effort and sometimes bleeding feet mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the public doesn't see. Mm-hmm. So. You have to know that all of this isn't that you see on the screen that looks so natural and so easy and so without effort is not that at all. Mm-hmm. It's with a great deal of effort and a lot of sacrifice, and some people got hurt. Wow. Now, Mr. Bluth, I've got a question here. You mentioned uh, the element of humanity in acting and, and also in voice acting. And I've noticed that uh, not only in your films, but in, in most of all animation, um, you get these main characters who are animals that have, you know, human qualities. Mm-hmm. So is this a preference all around? And is this just a matter of preference in animation or of necessity? Or, or are there uh, strengths or weaknesses to using animals rather than humans? Like, uh, you know, I'm thinking Robin Hood. There's a practical side to making that decision. First of all, if your animators um, are usually green, not very experienced animators, you can go to animals and be successful much easier because no one questions how an animal moves. Mm-hmm. That's true. We don't stare at animals. <laughs> yeah. But once you start to animate a human being, we all know how humans move because we are human and we watch each other. Yeah. So if the human movement is not correct, then what happens is it breaks the magic. Uh, you then realize that it's just a drawing, and so the emotions are dispelled. I'm thinking of Little Mermaid right now where, you know, she finally gets her legs, goes out on land. And the animators, I know for sure, were very uh, against using any kind of live action reference. Uh-huh. They would not use it because they felt it was cheating. 
They wouldn't use it because um, I, their own ego said, no, I can come up with this. But I know over the years, like the nine old men, the best animators always used it yeah. because they were smart enough to do that. When I was at Disney Studio, these young kids, who were in, a lot of them uh, came from CalArts, they, they objected to using any kind of live-action study. So consequently, what happens is it shoots yourself in the foot. Because you cannot imagine how the human anatomy functions. You have to see it. And for years and centuries, didn't people use models to paint portraits? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you ask someone to paint a portrait of someone, wouldn't you ask for at least a photograph? So I don't think it, uh, you, you have to, it takes a very skilled animator. I'm going to mention a man's name who is probably the king of, of um, human animation, and that's Milt Call. And so many animators today probably, if they haven't done their study of history, don't even know who that is. But Milk Call was one of the nine men at Disney's. He was top man when it came to doing human figures, and he was very gifted at just being able to look at the live action on, a, on film, just run it on his moviola. He could look at it and then go to his board and draw it, and not many other people could do that. Cool, thanks. Now, I want to talk specifically about one film in particular, and that's Robin Hood. Uh, you were an animator on Robin Hood, and it's one of my favorite Disney films. And what I like so much about it is that it's it's all interpreted in the animal kingdom, and it's told the story is told by animals and played out by animals. And to me, that produces a lot of comic relief. Now, my question is, was the decision to make the, the animal kingdom, you know, the, the story, the setting of Robin Hood, was that a matter of necessity by the animators, or was it a more creative decision, or did it go deeper than that? Well, they already had the Earl Flynn version of Robin Hood, and then Russell Crowe has come along and made another you know, version right. of Robin Hood. And I, I don't know how many others are out there of Robin Hood, all done with live action, and each one of them, except for the Earl Flynn, for me, each one of them is quite forgettable. So I think it was an attempt to do something that would be fresh, something that the audience had not seen already. So, And I think it was inspired by the fact that there was Peter Ustinov, who was eager to do a voice uh, of Prince John. <laughs> right. And he's a marvelous actor. And, you know, he could have been Prince John uh, as a live-action actor, too. But he, but no, he was very, very fun as that lion. Right. So that became fun. And Robin Hood, um, I think they were just after some kind of a little light, frothy thing that was easy to animate, because some of the, some of the nine old men, as they call them, I think were getting tired. Besides animating the picture, they were trying to train all of us to be animators, and that was a tough task. <laughs> so you know, there was the human part of this going on at the same time. But it was fun. I mean, Robin Hood is where I actually uh, got my leg. Wow. What I think is interesting about Robin Hood is that it, uh, it's, it's very episodic, yeah. and there's not really a, a story arc. or it's, it's kind of just, it has this, and then it goes to this scene and this scene, and then it kind of just gets yeah. all settled at the end very quickly. Um, but that the characters were taken, were based on Chanticleer, weren't they? And, and kind of those, and that's a movie that you ended up making. Right. The, you know what? You bring up a really, really good point, and that is um, episodic. They knew it was episodic, but they didn't know it until they were three quarters of the way done. <laughs> and then they said, well, how can we wrap this up? And yeah. how, can we make, how can we make Prince John now a real villain when he's been a spoof or a clown? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know why they didn't know that beforehand. But let me say that I think the strength of Disney Studio was Walt himself. He was a good storyteller. When he died in 1966, uh, Wolfgang von Reitherman, whom we called Wooly, took over as the director. Now, Wooly is Wooly. He's going to put on that screen what is familiar to him. Wooly was a World War II fighter pilot. And so anything that he put on the screen was generally episodic, <laughs> like shooting down airplanes. Um, and it wasn't very sentimental. He couldn't do romance because the guy was, you know, this big German fighter pilot. <laughs> and, if, and if you took a romantic scene up to him, he would puff on a cigar and look at it and scowl and go, yeah, this is really sort of gooey, and, and, and it would never get cut out. So everything had to do with the feelings and the background of the person who was directing. And Walt, when he was there, last picture Walt directed was up to the halfway point in Jungle Book. And Jungle Book still is kind of holding together, but it isn't really. And then Wooly finished Jungle Book. Um, the one that Walt was still there making, 100%, was Sleeping Beauty. I was there during Sleeping Beauty. 
And that was the picture I got to work on. In fact, that was my first picture. And uh, Walt at that time wasn't in the studio, maybe about 20% of his time. The other 80%, he was in Anaheim building Disneyland. But we were making the picture that we thought was going to be the penultimate expression of drawn animation. It was to be perfect. Mm -hmm. okay. and, I would say it was. <laughs> well, and, and what was weird, you know, <laughs> the whole, about the whole thing is that it was done people. It was all shot live action, and then every frame of the live action was printed out in a photo stat and right. punched with peg holes and given to the animator, so we all used live action. But the story was weak. I mean, it was beautiful, beautiful animation, but the story was kind of weak, and I think Walt wasn't paying too much attention. Uh, the villain, for example, Maleficent, she's very two-dimensional. I don't know anything about her except I'm asking the question all the time, is she so smart? Why does she associate entirely with goons? <laughs> Why doesn't she have anyone intelligent around her? Unless she's not intelligent, you know. So it gets sort of weird. And, and why is she so angry because she didn't get an invite? <laughs> I've asked that question myself on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> so see, that the, the little plot points aren't making much sense. And these guys have been making pictures for years. So I, I think it was just Walt was, he was looking somewhere else when they're making Sleeping Beauty. And his heart was really in that Disneyland. And, you know, you, know, you can only think about producing so much and then, yeah. you know, you get weary. You go home at night and fall in bed. But I, I think had he been paying attention like he did in Snow White or Cinderella or any of those pictures, I would have been different. I mean, surely in Snow White, I, really strong villain, really strong villain. And I understand her motives exactly. So hmm. the, the one that's weak in Snow White is Snow White because I don't know who she is. Yeah. Uh, she's this little doll that goes around singing songs, but I don't know anything about what she wants. The prince is very weak, though. Yeah, he's weak, too. <laughs> the prince was never my favorite. I think of all of, like, as far as princes go, the this in Sleeping Beauty, you you liked Prince Philip. Yeah, yeah. Like, you got him. You're like, all right, cool. You're, he's a hero. He's a hero, yeah. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't do too much heroic, although, you know, he is chained down in the dungeon, and he does try and get out and save. Yeah. You know, so there's something there about that prince. Um, funny thing about the prince, there's some little funny lines in it where he finds her in the forest, and that, that's kind of delightful, the way he yeah. finds her, and, you know, then she's running away. Will I ever see you again? No, never, never. Well, maybe tonight. <laughs> you know, so you get funny dialogue in it. But um, it, was, it was done in Cinemascope. It wasn't called Cinemascope. I think they called it something like widescreen 55 or something Camarama like that. or something. I can't remember what they... But anyway, uh, that meant the paper that we worked on on our desks was big, wide paper. It wasn't like the little animation paper we work on. It was big, wide paper, and trying to flip that while you're drawing little birds was really <laughs> But nowadays, you don't have to work at that because the computers have solved all of that. You can work on any size paper you want and just stick it on the screen, and it turns into the CinemaScope. You don't have to deal with cells. You don't have to deal with paper with anything. Yeah. But... <laughs> with the computer also came the demise of traditional drawing. Mm -hmm. However, there's three things that you might want to note is that if you like to draw and you want to make that your profession, there's still three areas where the computer cannot make you obsolete. One of them is designing characters. You still need a pencil to do that. Mm -hmm. The other one is designing backgrounds and things like that. And there's one more area, which is slipping my mind right now, storyboard, storyboard. Mm -hmm. So yeah. those three areas... You have to be able to draw, and you can't push a button and make any one of those happen. So for those who really mirror the diehards and are just clinging you know, <laughs> desperately to their pencils, uh, those are the three areas I point to and say, well, you still got it. Go there. So how do you feel about the state of animation today? Because it's kind of the end of 90s, the late 90s, early 2000s, when traditional animations kind of went away. There's still a few here and there, independent studios, but it's predominantly CGI. Right. And you did a lot of um, experimenting with computer animation, like in Anastasia, you know, kind of with the, uh, all the vehicles in right, that right, and, and other, other films, you know, you kind of progressed into that tiny as a lot. So, I mean, what are your feelings about how it's went and, and how you used it, I guess? You know what? I, either way is okay to me where my brain is nowadays is um, traditional or CG. I'm okay if I like the story and I like the characters. That's why I can I can go to Up and like it. Mm -hmm. I can go to uh, Tangled and like it. I'm not sure Brave has caught me yet. <laughs> I liked Brave at first, but did, thinking back, I don't like I, it as much as I did. I haven't gone back to see it again, so I don't know. Well, when you leave the theater, the feeling that you have, that's what usually tells you. 
but I know entangled um, where where I sat up and started watching for sure was when Mother Knows Best. <laughs> went, wow, that is amazing. And they adhered to all the rules of traditional animation at the same time made me believe that that woman had a feeling and she was not going to let go of the girl. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Death or anything, she was not going to let go. And I got involved. And then when she stabs the prince, mm-hmm. went, ah! she stabbed him. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can get involved in it and just say, wait a minute, this is a movie. Stop, stop being humiliating. This is a movie. But uh, the illusion sometimes is fairly strong. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did have some other questions about um, you. You put on the Masters of Animation classes. How often do you put those on, and what? Well, you know what? I haven't done it now for a little while. Oh, yeah. I stopped doing it. We were we were doing. Um, we had a website, and we would have a seminar every week in which we would broadcast live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were doing that, and then we were also doing master classes where we invite people to come in person. So we were in the room together, mm-hmm. and that worked out better. I'd like to start doing those again. Yeah. Cause and I would like to attend them. <laughs> would you go? Oh heck yeah! <laughs> well, we're, we're thinking about doing that again because I think we had one that was so successful. We had 15 people in the class, and we did it every day for about six hours a day for one full week. And at the end of which, these guys were really turning out some nice animation. Mm-hmm. And what it takes is you have to put a piece of paper over their drawing. They stand behind you and they watch you and you make a little correction and you talk and tell them why this would be stronger. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, something, a little light goes on in their head and then they see it. Whereas if you write about it, the philosophy of animation, no one's going to get it. Yeah. You have to see it. Mm-hmm. I think that is the concept of animation. <laughs> yeah, you have to see it. So anyway, that's, that's what we're thinking of going and maybe doing those again. And um, I've got a lot of tutorials, which we sell, which I try and explain it, and I illustrate it by showing drawings and everything, hoping that maybe some of the young people out there who, who constantly send emails, you know, and I, I don't know what to do about it exactly because there's too many. I don't, yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to um, approach it except to make tutorials and then say, here, buy these, and maybe this will help. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. That's cool. You know, it's funny, like, Morgan and I have always been interested in animation. Like, me, even though I've never had the... I've never really felt like I would ever go into animation. It was just always something that I really enjoyed. And yeah. so we would just always like look up different things. And we found your website a couple of years ago. And it it always, it really struck me as being really cool that you would even, you would answer individual letters that people would post on there. And you're like, Oh yeah, I did it. Or, well, we, you know, we're trying to do it, but part of it was getting the finances to work. Mm-hmm. That was really why we said, because my, my other son, he would help me with it because he knows the computers very well and mm-hmm. I nothing. So <laughs> he, um, he would help and we would do all that. But then he has a life and he has to keep making money and we couldn't make enough money to make yeah. it pay for him. Yeah. That was the problem. Mm-hmm. So, but we figured out a way, I think, that we can. So we'll probably go back at it again. Because I'd like to, I'd like to pass on some things I learned. I learned a lot of stuff when I was there at Disney, and then in the pictures that I've made that I could pass on. Yeah, but I don't have form to do it. Yeah, so we've got to create one. Have you ever considered teaching at a? I mean, obviously Arizona is not a very big animation location. There's no animation schools here or whatever. But have you ever thought teaching at a college as a way to do that? I've always had a hard time with, (laughs) I've always had a hard time going into colleges or, I went to the Art Institute one time and thought maybe I might do that. Mm -hmm. And I really, really pulled out of there very quickly. (laughs) Because I found that they weren't interested in the art, they were interested in the money and the, and same thing with Collins College. So I said, wait a minute, and I knew it would happen, I couldn't teach at BYU. Mm-hmm. I absolutely know I couldn't. I would be, really, I'd be in that red tape so fast, and you know, and, and and so I'd rather believe in <laughs> believe in, in fairies and brownies and all that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> rather than go and dispel it. So you are supposed to hear that, Mason. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's okay. We're still friends. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess one last question is. Uh, you re-released Dragon's Lair as a as an app, I guess, the comic books. 
Yes, yeah, it was. So, so that's been really good, and like from what I've read, people really like that. And but then there's always this rumor. So I guess I have to ask you: there's a rumor about the movie. That's you know, that's a, <laughs> like where did this come from? That's an ongoing thing. We have about a half of a script written, which mm-hmm. which is very funny and good, which explains it's a prequel. It explains who this guy Dirk is and who Daphne is. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that right now. We have a um, we have a man who has come forward and says. I want to put the money together and I want to fund this. And he looks believable, but we've been listening to this for a year. Yeah. So, but he hasn't gone away. Yeah. And now we're writing contracts. So maybe. Cool. I just remember um, my very first exposure to you uh, and your animation was when I would go to the arcade on Saturdays with my dad. <laughs> and I would, I, I, that game was expensive. If I remember it was, it was an expensive game to play. It was like four quarters or something. So I never, I never like played it, but I just remember sitting there and watching the cycle of the animation and then the hand and would turn to all bubbly and, and Daphne. And I just remember looking and thinking, this is the coolest animation game that I've ever seen. And, and then later found out who it was and it was but, you. you know, so. it, it came out during a period when all we had was Donkey Kong and Pac-Man and everything. So there's no visually yeah. anything there. Yeah. But I think when Dragon's Lair happened, suddenly it was a vision. It was, a, it was pictures. Mm-hmm. You could see it and you could watch it. And, and Dirk was a neat character because he was stupid. <laughs> innocence a better word yeah, you know, yeah. he's just innocent and a bungler and he couldn't you know for a night he was just not there yeah and then he's the one that's going to go save the girl i don't know <laughs> may not happen now about dragon's lair out of all the films and the projects you've done in the past why why specifically bring back dragon's lair you know what i don't know we've received a lot of um a lot of mail from people who said they would like to know more about the story and Dragon's Lair, this is also a weird thing. For all the films that, that I've made during my career, which is 12, there's only about four that stand out. And the ones that people ask the most about are not the films, but that game. <laughs> and so even though American Tale and Land Before Time and, you know, All Dogs Go to Heaven and Anastasia and all those films are there, um, it seems like Dragon's Lair is the one that interests them. And I have been not able to figure that out. <laughs> It was only, you know, Dragon's Lair is only 15 minutes of animation, and we just flopped it, so it became 30. So you see it going one way, and then you turn it over, and you see it going another way. And so it, it really is a game, you know, and, and we tried in Dragon's Lair 2, we tried to turn it into more of a, so, a story, but it still isn't like that. During the days when we were making Dragon's Lair, though, I remember thinking, you know what? Movies could be interactive. It would be so much fun to go to a movie, for example, like, um, take the Dark Knight, which is out right now, so that a certain way in, into the movie, the lights go up for a second, and and you pick a number that's under there, and then it goes to a new ending that you haven't seen. And there could be ten endings. Mm-hmm. And all through the movie, there could be places where you make a decision which changes the mm-hmm. way the story works out. And no one's ever done it. The closest we cool. have is in the games, but if you had interactive storytelling, that would be more fun for me. Like, but how do you how do you choose who gets their choice of decision? It'd have to be a personal thing. Well, yeah. it would in the sell through because as it goes into your home, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Then you know you just pick whatever you want to go, and it's going to go there. You can't have family fights over it, but you know, uh, <laughs> I think I think somewhere in there. Uh, all right, we got five over here for here. But you probably will want to go say, well, let's go let's go to the first track this time. Yeah. And then you meet another juncture where there's a fork in the road, and let's go to four track this time and see where it goes. So the movie has several places you can mm-hmm. explore, and it wouldn't be any that harder to shoot because you've got the set, you've got everything already there. Just shoot the different versions. Mm-hmm. The scriptwriter would have the problems. <laughs> You'd have to write all the different variants. Maybe there's one where you have a tragic ending, and it's your fault. And maybe there's one where you have just the most wonderful, glorious ending, but you can't remember how you got there. Mm-hmm. So it could be fun. That's intriguing. I like it. Interactive movies. Somebody's going to do it somewhere. It can happen. Somebody listening to the podcast thinks, I'm taking it. <laughs> That's mine. I think the computers make it possible. Right now, theaters, the way you watch theaters, you've got too many people in there, and it would be kind of hard to do it. Right. Well, you know, Don, we, we are so, you know, we're really grateful to have this chance to be able to come over and be able to sit down and talk with you. It's really, it's always enlightening every time I've had a chance to sit down and just kind of hang out. I feel like, I feel like we've barged in and just said, hey, we're here. <laughs> That's good. good. And it, it helps me reaffirm what I think I believe. <laughs> 
Yeah. One thing I would just like to say, I'd like to just thank you for being a good person. Like that's something that we can you can really see about you is you're just a decent moral and just all around good person that tries um, to treat everyone with a lot of respect and Well this takes effort, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh I know. But thank you. That's a nice compliment. You guys are doing a nice thing here. Keep doing it and see if you can get this to grow because I think the uh, the interest that people are gonna feel in animation will grow. Every time a generation comes up, they see all the history, they see all the movies that are out there, and inevitably, a lot of them say, I want to do that. How do they learn how? Yeah. So you can supply information. I think that can help. Yeah. Now, I'll try and do the master classes here. We're about to go into a building, I think. Yeah. And I'll put the classes over there. And oh. then certain That'd be really good. So it's You're going to double up with the play and the, the master classes? Yeah, so it'll be a theater, but it's also be an academy for learning. Cool. We, we one time did a thing where, uh, I think it was an American tale, where we wanted the animators to get the feeling of what it's like to be on stage and act. So we hired an instructor to come in and teach the animators acting. Huh. And it was very, very funny because the poor animators, just, <laughs> they were so shy and could not get up there and could not do the things. And he gave each of them scenes from plays like on the waterfront yeah. or from Glass Menagerie. We gave them scenes, and they had to get up and act out the scene in front of all their other animators. They were really, really had a hard time. But at the end of it, they learned things. Like, you can tell what a person feels about themselves by the way they walk. Yeah. So as soon as you see someone walk, you go, ah, whether they have confidence, or whether they're lacking confidence, mm-hmm. or whether they're stubborn. You know, all those things come out in the walk. And now if you knew that, I found that the animators started going now back to do the walks and the characters. And they started thinking, well, what is this character like inside? So I know how to do the walk. Yeah. So it all connects somewhere. It connects very much in the world of dance, as you might know. Yeah. Because dance is expressing feelings with movement of your body. Mm-hmm. And some do it well, and some should not do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or me. Stay out of that. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, it's fun to watch when someone knows how to do it, and, they, and they're connected. There's another thing that, that your listeners might be interested in, and that is uh, an expression called the blue note. Have you ever heard of that? No. You probably should have, but it's, the blue note is the thing that plays <laughs> when you're inspired. And musical composers like Haydn, Beethoven, uh, Chopin, all of them have spoken about when the blue note plays, I can compose. When the blue note is not playing, I, I, don't, know what to, I don't know what to compose. Uh, writers have the same thing, or they call it writer's block. But sometimes yeah. the block isn't there, and the ideas flow faster than their fingers can move. Mm-hmm. What is that? I call it inspiration, because I think, I find that some days I can get up and I can draw, and other days I cannot. What is that? Mm-hmm. And so the expression we've used is that when the blue note plays, you can be creative. When the gods choose to switch it off, you just can sit and tap your foot and wait. <laughs> Which leads you to the point is that isn't you at all. Yeah, that's for sure. So when, once you get that, you approach it more readily because you realize that and just it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And, and most artists would never imagine that because their egos are too gigantic, you know, and they keep thinking it's me, it's me. Mm-hmm. Look how good I am. Look how good it's me, it's me. It's not. Yeah. For me, when, with songwriting, I, I either have something or I don't. And I just, it, it'll come and it'll just be like basically all right there. Yeah. Or I won't have anything at all. And I'll just have like some little snippets of something that really isn't anything at all. And just you know kind of it, pathetic. <laughs> you know what it is then? But they, mm-hmm. they call it the blue note. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I have to be aware. I don't know. Oh, now I have a name for it. <laughs> but it doesn't come. You just know it's not playing. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one thing that I know for sure is it's not me. Like, you have to but you know, you look should, at it from you that way. You should be really encouraged in the fact that you are programmed as a person to hear it. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Yeah. But having gotten there, I think everyone that's alive is programmed to hear a form of that blue note, whatever gift it is. That. Yeah. So everyone really should be able to access it if they know what they're listening for. If they don't, then poor devils, they just go through their whole life and never get the blue note. <laughs> Or honey, it's the same, honey for your talent. What is your talent? What is your skill that you were born with? Because when you left heaven, somebody gave you a skill and said, this will protect you. So what is it you got? And some never know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked how you said that. It was just how everybody is given a gift to protect themselves, you know, to go out there and fight for themselves and fight their their fight. You know, life is not easy. No, it isn't. (laughs) And if you don't have that little thing, I mean, even the... Even the serpent that goes around, his only protection knows to sting somebody or to bite someone, and at least, you know, he can get away. Well, that's the gift he was given. 
-hmm. We don't like it, but let's just keep so um, with animators and, and, and all forms of art, I think everyone does have a gift. And I don't think of people as artists and non-artists. I think of people as all being artists. Yeah. Some don't know it, but they are. So what's your gift? My gift? Hmm. Gift or talent? Being me. <laughs> Leading. Yeah. Inspiring. Others, kind of. And that's it. That's your gift to protect yourself. Well, well thank you so much for letting us come in and, and talk to you. It's been inspiring and educational and fun. So. Yeah, definitely. Like, I have had the greatest time having you um, in this interview, Mr. Blue. So thank you so much for your time. I've taken down like a whole page, you know, a couple pages of notes here. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to use them. Um, thank you so much for, for everything that you've said and, and uh, all the wisdom that you've imparted. Yeah, just thank you. Thank you, Mason. Yeah, and I want to be in those uh, master classes that you're teaching. Seriously, sign me up. Oh, really? Yeah, well, we'll let you know. Those are a lot of fun. We have all the desks and everything. Oh, great. That's fun. So we just go in there and start doing that. We have a lot of fun. It's good. It's a, the main problem is, you know, if you come down here, then you have to have a place to stay and you have to have a place to eat and a place to wash your clothes. And... We can hook you up, Mason. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> you have the in with us. It's okay. <laughs> He's like, hey, can I sit? Nope. <laughs> no, sorry. We're yeah, no We're business only. Anyway, keep up the good work up there in Utah. I certainly will. Thank you. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. Awesome. And the next one is uh, you're listening to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers. <laughs> Hello, this is Don Bluth, and you're listening to the Animation Addicts broadcast with the Rotoscopers. Podcast. What, podcast? Podcast. Podcasting, okay. Hello, this is Don Bluth, and you're listening to the Animation Podcast with the Rotoscopers. Animation Addicts Podcast. Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, is that right? <laughs> yes, yes. Animation Addicts Podcast. Animation Addicts Podcast. Hello, this is Don Bluth, and you're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers. Perfect. <laughs> uh, you have to very quickly.